0: Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. Today I'm reading from my commentary on the book of Revelation. and We're going to be talking about the demise of Babylon in chapters 18 and 19. So open your Bible, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 18. Let's start in verse 1. What begins in 18.1 is a separate vision from chapter 17, but not a separate subject. Another angel is used. In this chapter there's no imagery only facts the fact of Babylon's fall the fact of those who mourn her the announcement is made by an angel of great authority and may I suggest that this could be the great archangel spoken of by the apostle paul in 1 Thessalonians 4:16 in connection with paul's description of his coming a full account of which immediately follows in 19:11 to 16 there is the voice of the archangel the message of that voice only lasts through verse 3 then another voice reminds people of God of all generations to stay clear of babylon now that same destruction seemingly already passed in verses 1 to 3 is back to the future in most of the rest of the chapter in 182 the angel says what we heard in 148 um, consider the echoing of the phrase, is fallen. We talked about that before. <clears throat> the original in Isaiah 21, nine is the same. It says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Could it be that this double announcement is to lead us to believe that there are two Babylons? There was that original city, now in ruins, yet never destroyed as God had promised, with violent suddenness. Then there is Babylon on the Tiber, according to chapter 17. It's Rome and the kingdom centered there. Are they both to fall at this time? Of course, Babylon would have to be rebuilt. And Saddam Hussein was working on that, right? Well, that's a while back. But is the war against Iraq? Was it going to cause Iraq's expansion and a new day for her? That didn't quite work out. Or has Rome been so taken over by Islamic culture that she is christened Babylon in the last days? We don't know. It seems odd to hear back in the 90s AD a prophecy about a city that was supposed to have been finished centuries before. Here is a mystery indeed for believers to continue to investigate. Wrestle with God. Let's do it together until every syllable of every text involved is crystal clear. It's not good enough to have most of the mystery resolved. There are answers for every riddle. I believe those who want to know these things will know them more and more as the day draws near. A continuing description of Babylon's destruction as the chapter progresses sometimes matches word for word the picture painted by Isaiah of the original city in Isaiah 13, 14, and 34. Read them and see for yourself. One significant difference in the angel's words, however, is the addition of demon spirits to the mix. This coming horror is not just a human tragedy. Babylon will be Satan's masterpiece. It will now bear Satan's mark. It will be on earth, the gathering place of all that is evil, a veritable prison holding the enemy captive until its new home, the lake of fire, is prepared to receive him. Verse 3 takes us back to 17.2 and explains to us how the evil centered in Rome slash Babylon has infected, as with a deadly virus, all the nations. Another voice in verse 4, Back from the future and into the present again, People of God come out of her. As the prophet Isaiah warned, and as the apostle Paul echoed, also using Isaiah, notice that Paul's quote from Isaiah is not exact. He is speaking as the Spirit gives him utterance here. He says, do not even touch what is unclean. Distance yourself from this world, except where absolutely necessary. 18.5 continues the rationale for separation from the evil of this world the cup of iniquity is full. It's time for judgment. Don't be anywhere near that which God hates so much. The request for judgment, verses 6 and 7. The announcement has already been made. The innocent are being asked to step aside so that judgment can fall. Though it seems that believers themselves are being told to do the judging of Babylon, Looking at the end of verse 8, lets us know that it is God who does this. And in 1716, we find his servants for this destruction, the Antichrist kingdom. The Antichrist kingdom itself throws Babylon off and tramples her. Jesus, though he is very near at this point, about to come, he hasn't yet come and rendered direct judgment, I don't believe. He's using forces of nature and forces of war. Well, here in verses 6 and 7, we get more insights into who this woman is. Her demeanor is that of a proud queen that cannot be removed from the throne. She believes she is God's representative on earth and therefore deserves every luxury and every privilege. How mistaken she is. God's true representatives on earth are like Jesus, and the mind that is in them inevitably leads them to wash disciples' feet and die on a cross. Let us beware the evil of our hearts that wants to think in terms of deserving blessings. Let us always approach the throne of mercy as humble subjects of the King, knowing we are friends of the court, but knowing also how undeserving is that friendship. Note the quickness of the judgment to come. Her plagues will come in one day. In verse 10, in one hour your judgment has come. In verse 17, in one hour such great riches came to nothing. In 19, in one hour she is made desolate. Sounds like the instant end of Hiroshima and Nagasaki or or even much worse. One day Babylon flourishes. The next she is gone. Then begins the the pitiful lament. Lament the funeral song, by the great men of earth for the great city of Babylon. These world leaders obviously have no part in her destruction, as this is a work of the Ten Horns Empire. This separation of powers is one clue that the ten-district theory of end-time government will not hold. Why would world powers mourn Babylon's fall if they were all responsible for it? Better to think in terms of the United States of the Mediterranean, a confederation of ten states located roughly in the territory once called the Roman Empire. However, the worldwide connection to the beast and the harlot becomes obvious here. When she is gone, their own status is ruined. She was the supplier as well as the recipient of their goods, the supreme trading city of earth. Now, Before we continue, we must take a look at this New Testament Babylon, the city of Rome, today. She doesn't seem to be all that powerful now. Here at the beginning of the 21st century, in fact, where is there anywhere except America, a metropolis that fits the words of Revelation 18, soon to follow in our reading? We're looking for an unequaled center of trade, a center of music, commerce, religion, military might. One can imagine why some have thought that Babylon is really America today. Elements of Babylon are certainly in this country, but we're looking for a city that meets the description. New York, Washington, Los Angeles. If we look at our world and we don't see what the Bible says, let's be careful not to invent something for God. The Bible still mentions only one candidate in two forms for this final city. The city must be Babylon or that which became Babylon in the eyes of the revelator of this book. Namely, the city of Rome. If neither of those candidates match up today, Rome or a rebuilt Babylon, we need to give them time to blossom. God's word cannot be inaccurate. I believe that either one or both of those cities will ultimately rise to fulfill their place in history. Now, can Rome rise again? When the Pope is able to convince all religions to come together, Rome can rise When the Pope can persuade the people of Jerusalem that he indeed is the one who can successfully solve the Middle East conflict through internationalizing Jerusalem, I speculate, Rome could could rise through that. When the nations of earth look for a return to the glory years and financial prosperity, a United States of Europe, then Rome can rise. You know, it was at the Treaty of Rome... We talked about last time, 1957, that Europe began a rise to modern power. That cannot be a coincidence. A curious insight is related in 18 verses 10 and 11. The kings of the earth all seem to be near while Babylon is being destroyed, but they deliberately stand at a distance. Is this because the sixth bull demons have gathered them in one place for the coming battle against God Almighty? It would seem so. This is, after all, the last of the last days. Antichrist is furiously releasing every evil force at his command and has just, quote, dropped the bomb on Babylon. In verse 15, the earth's merchants, many of them on hand to trade, also have to step back. Alas! Alas! An expression of sorrowful shock is used only in this chapter of the New Testament. Even sin-minded, plague-devastated humans will be shocked when they see Babylon fall. Here's a catalog of the merchandise about to be lost to the world system. Now, uh, These humans are strange creatures. Uh, If my... Chronology is right here. The sun has been darkened and millions of people are dead all over the earth and nature and human nature are at their worst and yet their greedy souls are concerned more about the money they'll lose on things than that the world is falling apart. Come to think of it, that's not all that far from the description of people today. The love of money drives the hearts of men in the face of world catastrophes even now. Here's the list of Grieved merchandise in the categories given gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls, category one, and then fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, types of wood, ivory, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, incense, fragrant oil, frankincense, wine, oil, flour, wheat, fruit, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, the bodies and souls of men, slavery, it never ended. Rich and splendid things covers everything else. This is a list of products to be found in the final capital of the world. How stands that description at this hour? Rome must surely rise again. What about now? Is she a major trading city today? Is slavery there, other than the spiritual bondage for which she is famous? The word of God, every word is pure. When this city exists, it will be obvious. In verse 15, it echoes verse 10, but it speaks of merchants instead of world leaders. The same pattern for naval personnel is found in 1817. 1816 brings us back to 17.4, reminds us that indeed, chapters 17 and 18 are speaking of the same place. The funeral song neatly divides into three portions, the kings of the earth in 9 and 10, the merchants in 11 to 17, and the navy in 18 and 19. Political, financial, military grief. Babylon is gone. Notice the similarity of their songs. They all start out, Alas, alas, that great city. And then they add their own personal perspective of the description of that place Following this, it is for in one hour, they all say, God has destroyed her, and the city has come to desolate nothingness. Heaven responds with three categories of worshippers, rejoicing in the moment, the holy apostles, the prophets, the angels. There is no sorrow over this in heaven, for the happiness of man was never the purpose of heaven, rather the glory of God. God has gotten glory from this vengeance. Let no voice of sympathy for those poor humans be voiced. Mercy is now being expressed in new ways. A merciful God has rid the earth of this cancer that once poisoned all it contacted. Earth is being purified. God is being glorified. So be it. Now the angel's pronouncement in verse 21. And is this any different from what the Old Testament writers saw of old Babylon? Did they see some gradual falling away of the city? No. Jeremiah says Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. More to the point, the finality and speed of Babylon's fall are explicitly demonstrated by the command of Jeremiah to Sarai, the quartermaster, to take his book of prophecy about Babylon, tie a stone to it, and throw it into the Euphrates River. This was to be the sign that Babylon would not recover, that it would go down quickly, immediately, and not come back up. But wait! Babylon only slowly drifted away from prominence, being for scores of years after its takeover a coveted jewel of world conquerors. As John wrote these words on Babylon, a strong Jewish community lived in the old city of Babylon. It wasn't gone even yet. Babylon's full fate seems to be yet future, as Revelation 18.21 points out again. Here Jeremiah's picture is revived. This time it's not a quartermaster, but a a master angel who picks up a stone and throws it. The sea is the recipient now. And you know, there's no sea around old Babylon. But the message is the same. Babylon is to be thrown down once and for all, and never be found again. Time and nature eventually took ancient Babylon from power, but this was not God's final plan. The spirit ruling old Babylon entered the city and governance of Rome, raising it to prominence among the earth's billions, and thus making her ripe for judgment as though she were indeed Babylon. This will not be a repeat performance, for the original sentence was never carried out. This will be the first and last time. Yes, when all that is Babylon is scheduled for judgment, that judgment will be swift and sure, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. That's 18.8. Next comes yet another list, this time of things which shall never be in the city again, verses 22 and 23. All manner of musicians and craftsmen of every sort, light, weddings, all of human life. It's finished. And perhaps the most Fascinating statement of all is saved until the end of the chapter, verse 24. The blood of prophets, God's spokesmen, saints, all of God's people, and all of earth's slain, too, is somehow tied to this city of Babylon. Back to Jeremiah 51 for light on this. 51.49 As Babylon has caused the slain of Israel to fall, so at Babylon, the slain of all the earth, Shall fall. God never forgot what Babylon did to his people. And that same spirit of Babylon entered Medo Persia, afterwards, then Greece, then Rome and Romanism, and kept hurting God's people and God's spokesmen. Always the descendants of Nimrod have hated God's men, and even caused all the other problems of earth. Everything Babylon has done is now being judged in one fell swoop, one mighty moment of power and destruction and vengeance. Perhaps it is permissible to think of it this way. When God spoke to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, he was really speaking to Satan, his enemy. And when God spoke to old Babylon about judgment, perhaps it's possible he was speaking to the spirit of that city, personified in Revelation as a harlot, he knew that evil personage inside the city would regroup and eventually form a Babylon greater and more powerful than the first, and that city would then be destroyed as Babylon the first never was. The response to Babylon's fall is continued in chapter 19, where, in verses 1 to 3, the multitudes of, of heaven, including the 24 elders and the living creatures, are back, verse 4, the ones that we met at the beginning. They shed not one tear for the world-corrupting prostitute. The lady who had the reins of the beast for all these centuries is down and out. Yet her people will never be extinct, as we are reminded again here of the eternity of God's judgment. Now remains only the beast himself, seemingly running swiftly, wildly out of control. But his day is soon to arrive also. In 19.5, an angel we assume, commands worship to the Lord, reminding us that the eternal focus of heaven and heavens would-be citizens is to be the Lord God himself, not even his justice. Verse 6 is the response of the multitude of verse 1 to the angels' orders. Now the announcement of the marriage supper. were in verses 7 to 10 of 19. In verse 7 is the book's first mention of a marriage supper, No, no, it didn't already happen somewhere three and a half or seven years ago. No, it was not a secret banquet hidden from tribulation saints because of their lukewarmness. Where did we get these ideas? The banquet is here initially announced, and it looks as though it will take place in the immediate future. But first things first, there'll be another less tantalizing supper before it. Just for the record, The actual celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb itself is nowhere recorded in Scripture. The things that you hear are speculation. And here, once more, is a demonstration of the indefensibility of a pre-tribulation rapture during which believers are feasting around a table with Jesus while some lower-life tribulation saints bear horrible burdens. I think it's clear by this time in the story that the tribulation is past. Babylon is fallen. Heaven is rejoicing. Now let's celebrate with the church, says the Lord. By the way, that celebration will be on earth. Jesus promised the same to his followers. Matthew 26 relates the institution of the memorial supper to be celebrated for the duration of the church age. What strange things have been done with that something that couldn't be simpler to understand. Take some bread, take some wine, let them symbolize what I did for you so you won't forget it. And Jesus lets us know in this original statement that not only is this a memorial of what he did, but a preview of what is coming. Yes, there is a spiritual wine, a spiritual fellowship, a spiritual table in this spirit-filled age of ours, but I'm speaking as I believe Jesus was, also of a literal fulfillment of this prophecy. The angel is here summoning everybody to a feast. Jesus, the man, will actually return and eat and drink real food as he did once before in his resurrected body. This will be when the kingdom of God comes, Luke twenty-two eighteen. Jesus even told a story about a wedding feast. He implied there that fathers... Giving banquets for their about-to-be-married sons is the norm. It's not mere allegory that calls us the bride of Christ. That's how he views us. That's how he will receive us on that day. Our union will be celebrated by a feast before the entire world. Notice 19.8 that this bride is dressed in fine linen and that this clothing is said to represent the righteousness of the saints. There will be real clothing, But the thing represented is even more important. The fact that Christ has given us of his righteousness and caused us to be righteous like him. God has promised to conform us to the image of his son and now it is accomplished. In the next scene of this drama, verse 14, this same linen clothed multitude is sitting atop white horses prepared to invade earth. As always, they have no fear of dirtying their garments, for the Lord God, who is strong to save and to judge, will be doing all the work and cutting a path through the heavens and the horrors of earth directly to the holy city and the place where the banquet hall will soon be prepared. Now, why does John, verses 9 and 10, fall down to worship? The he of verse 9 is either one of the 24 elders or, more likely, an angel. He's a fellow servant of John. He, like John, serves the Lord God. He has the testimony of Jesus, and so does John, as John himself witnessed in his letter. In 22.9, a clearly defined angel describes himself in the same way to the apostle, just after John, again, tries to worship him. The citizens of that land have so much of the brightness and glory of Jesus in them that for an unchanged earthling like you and me, they must all seem like gods. Within a few years, John himself would wear that glory. And so this angel, who has called him to write, 19.9, thus consistently being the dictator of Christ's message, that's one stops John's attempts of worship cold and then gives us a thought worth pondering Worth applying to our own lives, lest we fall into a similar problem. Too often we enter into hero worship, or even delude ourselves into thinking there is something intrinsically wonderful about our own person when God begins to use us and to speak to us and through us. Oh, we have the message of the Lord flowing through us, the testimony of Jesus. But remember, remember the angel's word. Worship God. Don't look at me. The message of Jesus that we are proclaiming is the very essence of the prophecy that you are hearing at our lips. But the source of it all is God. Worship Him. In ourselves we do nothing, know nothing. God is all. God is in all. And now again, how many times has it been now, Jesus comes back to earth. You see what I was trying to tell you from the beginning. There's so much repetition in the book of Revelation because it's the same story being told from different perspectives. John relates three pictures of the coming of Jesus. We saw two in chapter 14. Uh, And we came to the end of the world a couple other times before that. Well, in chapter 14, we saw two pictures. The picture here is of an invading army. With Jesus at the head of it. I think this is more than a picture. I think this is the real deal. He's gathered his troops together, and on the day of battle, he is the hands down favorite. It's all over in a short time. No other passages in Revelation even come near to describing an actual return of Jesus as this one does. Oh, no, there's no hint of a secret coming, no need of one. The marriage supper is announced. Jesus leaves heaven, accompanied by the saints, comes to earth, conquering all who stand in his path. Zechariah sees the same thing. Jesus talks about it. Paul and Peter see it. And from the beginning of this final book, there have been constant hints about the return of Christ. Let's let's review that just for a moment. I'm looking at 1-7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. eight. The Lord who is to come. 2.25. Hold fast what you have till I come. 3.11. Behold, I come. Quickly. 11.17. The one who is to come. You have taken your great power and reigned. 14.14. The earth is harvested and reaped by one like the Son of Man. 16.15. Behold, I am coming as a thief. And now it happens. Chapter 19, it finally happens. Yes, this is the only time that Jesus comes to earth. This is the only time heaven is open to release the living word. This is the only time the full army of heaven is seen with Jesus. And is there any question as to the identity of this coming king? The Spirit has framed the entire event in language from other parts of Revelation. The prophets, the apostles. This is Jesus. He is uh, faithful and true, as in 3.14. He is righteous, judge, and warrior, as in Isaiah 11.4. He is possessed of eyes of a flame of fire, verse 12, as in 1.14. Crowned with many crowns, verse 12. And when the seventh angel sounded, it was announced that this world's kingdoms became the Christ's, all of them. Well, here he is seen wearing the crowns that he so richly deserves. He said to have his own special name, verse 12, unknown to anyone but himself. Well, in verse 13, his name is Word of God, but we know that name. In verse 16, the name written on him is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but we know that name too. What is that secret name? Oh, that's for him to know. His own people have been promised a unique name too, in way back in chapter 2. And then he's clothed with the blood-dipped robe, verse 13. No, that's not his own blood from Calvary. Isaiah 63 lines up here with Revelation 14 and this passage to let us know that Jesus will personally judge sin at his coming and create an unprecedented bloodbath among the nations. He is seen in this robe in anticipation of what he is about to do, but also because of what he has been allowing to happen for all time. He is the one who judges sin. His is the control of the universe after all. And then the word of God, verse 13. As from John's own gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. And then united to his church in verse 14. In Matthew twenty-four thirty-one, the elect are gathered from the four winds. First Thessalonians 4 says, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And 1 Corinthians 15, we shall all be changed in a moment at the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet. I submit to the church members who read this document that there is absolutely no conflict between the verses I have just quoted And the scene that John paints right here of the second coming of the Lord. I submit further that there is not one reason to take those former verses out of their normal context and make them apply to anything but that second coming. And then he's wielding the sword that strikes the nations in verse 15. That's Isaiah 11. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. The sword is the word that comes out of his mouth. The word of God is even sharper than a natural sword, Hebrews 4. And then he's ruling with a a rod of iron, verse 15. In Psalm 2, 8, Messiah is told, Ask of me, the Father, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them, the nations, with a rod of iron. The male child of Revelation 12.5, supervising the overcomers of 2.27, is scheduled to control absolutely the planet. He's also the treader of the wine press in verse 15. Again, in Isaiah 63, I have trodden the wine press alone. This very scene has been played out in chapter 14, a holocaust of unprecedented proportions, flesh for birds to eat for some time. He's king of kings and Lord of lords in verse 16. Make no mistake. He is coming to reign and reign totally, supremely. The kings of earth as Nebuchadnezzar of old will learn who he is as their kingdom is ripped from them and given to Jesus. Only he will be king in that day. For a reference to this grand fact, you can go back to Psalm again. Psalms 2, 10 and 45. Now that we know who he is, And what claim to authority he makes. Let's see what he does in 17 and 18. We're we're led to believe that the fourth and fifth bowl judgments did away with the sun for a short period, just before the return of Jesus. But here, an angel stands in the sun. Perhaps the damage to the sun was temporary, or perhaps the angel is standing in John's sky of the first century, painting the picture of the Supper of Flesh. The strange announcement given to birds is not new to the Scriptures. Seven hundred years earlier, God had told Ezekiel to speak to those winged creatures also. He said, Assemble yourselves and come. Gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. On the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men and with all the men of war. Much of this is word for word, like the passage in front of us. Here then is the link between Ezekiel's end-time war and John's. There are other connections. Ezekiel says this conflict will be in the latter years, will involve European nations, names of which match the table of such places in Genesis 10. Daniel agrees, mentioning the king of the north and tidings out of the north that trouble the end-time king in Daniel 11. A great earthquake is part of the scenario, and the fact that the nations shall know that I am the Lord. Yes, the king of kings will indeed take his crowns, as we've already seen. I will set my glory among the nations, is the promise given. Ezekiel and John saw the same day, the coming of Armageddon. We've seen the approach of Jesus in verses 11 to 16. Now comes anti Jesus, against him. The incredible thing about the confrontation of uh, verses 19 and 21 is that the enemy of our souls really believes he can, with the powers given him by God, defeat God. This is tremendous pride of the sort that leads to eternal destruction. In his case, self esteem taken to its ultimate. With demonic aid, he will summon the earth's kings to a war. They will respond. His intention will be to attack Jesus and the entire church as they descend together. He'll be utterly crushed. Obviously, most copies of the scriptures that tell of all this in plain detail will not be a major factor in the world's population. The Bible will probably have been destroyed or ignored for many years. Only the few saints who are left will know and understand what is happening. Now, you can see Daniel 12 at the end for a description of the blessed ones at the very end. So, here sits the little horn, thinking he's a big horn, the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, Daniel 11. The nations are raging, Psalm 2. The people are plotting a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. What is their thinking? Uh, The same as always. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Then the beast is captured and with the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire or as Daniel says it, He shall come to his end and no one will help him. There follows in Daniel an unequaled time of trouble, the coming of Jesus, the resurrections, judgments, just like what is about to happen here in Revelation. The prophets agree with John. What next? With the two leaders gone, the battle, such as it was, and it really wasn't, is over. It's time now to kill everyone in the same way. The sword that proceeds from Jesus' mouth, his sharp and mighty word, now comes that slaughter of millions upon millions gathered to oppose Jesus. Kings, captains, mighty men, horses, horse riders, free slaves fighting to be free, small, great. These were the ones who so hated Jesus Christ that when the call from demons came to replace Christ as Lord of the earth, once and for all, they responded, they're, now, they're dead now, they're all dead. The only sound you can hear is the noisy squawking of praying birds. I'm talking about P-R-E-Y, enjoying the feast of a lifetime. Next, we will enter into the description of life after Jesus' return. Life after Jesus' return. Next time, chapter 20. Thank you so much for being here one more time. This is a message that, as you have heard several times from me, I'm very intent on disseminating to the people of God. I hope that you'll pass it on to someone. Things are looking a little bit, in fact, a whole lot like the times predicted. Well, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.